Welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. I grew up in Glasgow. Um, pretty soon after was, I was born, my, my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So I, I grew up really without knowing my dad being a dad to me. My mum looked after him, she looked after three kids. I'm the eldest of, of three of us. And because of all of that, there was no real time for us individually to, to really be parented. And as I grew up, uh, I began to do the things for my dad that, that he should have been doing for me. So I was spoon-feeding my dad because by this time he was bedridden. And, you know, my earliest memories of my dad are, are walking with a, a Zimmer frame. And then he was in a wheelchair and then bedridden. And so, you know, I would brush his teeth, I would give him a drink, all of those kind of things. Um, he died when I was 11 years old. I, I was devastated because I think there was always that thing in my heart as a little boy that um, somehow something miraculous would happen and my dad would become my dad, you know. Uh, but absolutely devastated when he died and I was 11. And I remember back in those days, I would wake up in the middle of the night um, sweating, panicking, because I knew I wasn't going to heaven. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and I, I knew that no matter how long I lived, no matter how many good things I did, I would never be good enough to go to heaven. And I remember, I was very confused back then. I remember I, I praying to my dad. <laughs> you know, you're up there in heaven somewhere, going to have a word with God for me. And I had some issues to work through. You know, I'd, I'd lived, the life that I'd lived had been quite orphan-like life. You know, very young, I realised that my family was dysfunctional chaotic and that I could only really rely on me so I closed my heart off I, I stopped really connecting with people I stopped at, I had no attachments to people you know I, I could walk away from relationships and friendships like that and no regret nothing didn't miss them you know um, n- didn't form any real close relationships because what I learned was that when you attach to someone, when you get connected to someone, then you just end up in pain. You know, Trent Reznor, then they know who Trent Reznor is, Nine Inch Nails. He wrote a song that Johnny Cash covers, actually, called Hurt. And he says, you know, he finishes one of the choruses, uh, one of the verses, just saying, everyone leaves in the end. And that, that was kind of what I believed I believed everyone leaves in the end, so you're better not getting attached to anyone um, because it just you end up hurt. And so I just closed my heart off to all of that. And I had relationships, I had friendships, and but I never attached myself t- to anything or anyone. As I got older, I'd, I would have different groups of friends, so no one could ever get really close to me. If it seemed as though they were getting close to me, then I would just move on because I had other groups of friends that I could move, you know, I could go into most bars in Glasgow and, and meet someone I knew, have a drink with. I just had closed my heart very, very young to, to any kind of attachment relationship because life was, life was painful, you know? And the only way to avoid pain was to close my heart to, to life and to relationships. I remember very young, I, I, would, I found ways to hide from the world because the world was, was just confusing, uh, painful. I just couldn't get a handle on it. And so I, I, would, I began to read when I was really young because that way I could shut the world out. I could just have this narrow focus. And people could, even today, it's still a habit. I can be sitting reading a book. And unless you, you know, it's like you see the, the folks with autistic children, they're saying, you know, look at me. Unless you do that, I don't hear a word you're saying. 
I'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm, yeah. But I'm reading my book. I'm not listening to you. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, John, look at me. <laughs> if you'd really want me to understand and hear what you're saying. And so as I grew older, that, you know, hiding in books became hiding in alcohol, hiding in drugs and sex and politics and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. And when I became a Christian, I just hid in religion and service and activity and going to meetings and leading and all of those kind of things. And growing up, the, the only memories I have of getting praise or getting any kind of affirmation was through academic achievement. You know, I was quite bright as a kid. I think I've gotten duller as I get older, but never mind. <laughs> and so for me, I learned how to accumulate knowledge and learned how to debate and argue. And But really what I was doing was just storing information in my head. I wasn't living out of that place in my heart where where the Bible says that the issues of life come from. And we'll, we're going to look at that later on. And I, I try to think, I became a believer in 1985. And about, you know, went to Bible college and everything, learned how to study the Bible and uh, pastored a church while I was at Bible school. But when I, I didn't become a pastor with that denomination, I just came back to Glasgow in 1991. And sometime in the early 90s, I remember a friend coming back from Youth with a Mission and telling me about this week they have in, in the discipleship training school. And it's a week about the, father, the, the Father's love. And she's telling me all about it, and I'm saying, yeah, 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 that's good for you. Yeah, you know, I've been to Bible school, I've studied this stuff, I know this stuff. <laughs> you know, I know about that, I know God's a Father and she was so frustrated. She must have felt like punching my lights out. But I'm, I was, it must have been so patronising for me to be saying this, these things to her. Like, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that. But it kind of, deep down in my heart, it must have lodged something there. It must have put something there. Um, because pretty soon around that time, the whole Toronto thing began to happen in the UK. And it, it impacted our church and hearing people speaking about Father. And I I remembered when I first became a believer in 1985, I began to look back and realise that he was trying to talk to me about being a father to me. I read in Matthew's Gospel where it says, you know, don't call anyone on earth Father, because you you have one Father who is in heaven. And I just latched onto the first part of that. Having grown, grown up in the Catholic Church, you call the priest Father. And I thought, this is God telling me that Catholicism's wrong and, you know, all crazy thinking but that's just where my mind was at where my heart was at but I missed the second part of that verse you have a father who is in heaven he's speaking about himself being a father to me and I totally missed it right at the very beginning of my Christian walk and as I look back I just see little bits and pieces where he was continually trying to to get that through to me John I'm I'm your father the father you've never known. And I went through a lot of inner healing stuff, emotional healing, you know, cried, cried in a lot of people's shoulders, snotted in a lot of people's sweaters and shirts. <laughs> I remember going to LL uh, and doing one of their modular schools. And on one, one occasion... This must have been around 2000, something like that. Something stirred in my heart. I can't remember what it was that happened, but but one of the guys there said, you know, John, you're still that 11-year-old boy who's lost his dad, and you're, it's like you're trying to hold on to your dad. You need to let him go. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. But, you know, you did the good Christian things. like, right, OK, yeah, yeah, let's let's do that. off. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to this little chapel and he said okay John just pray just let your dad go and I couldn't do it you know I don't know how long we were there for but I just couldn't get any words out of my mouth I would try you know it's like the words were stuck here but I just couldn't get them out because I, I, I thought 
it's almost like I was 11 years old and if I say those words, my dad's gone forever. In reality, he has gone forever. He's, you know, he's dead. You know, he was 32 when he died. And I, but that little boy was just like, I can't, I can't let him go, you know. And so this guy said to me, you know, John, let your dad go. God wants to be your father. And I exploded. I totally exploded. Was like, I just shouted at God. I was like, you took my dad from me. I'm not, you're not taking his place. And part of me is like going, where the heck did that come from? <laughs> you know, I didn't even know that was in there. And I think so often we, we walk through our Christian lives and we don't realise what's in our hearts. I had no idea that attitude, that, that, that thought was in my heart. God, you took my dad from me. You're not taking his place. And suddenly I realised all of these years where he's been speaking to me about being a father to me, about wanting to father me, wanting to, to come to that place in my life where he can parent me and my spirit and my heart and my soul. I've been resisting him unconsciously. There's been a little boy saying, back off, because this is all your fault. All that's happened in my life, this is all your fault. You know, I, I grew up in, in an area pretty rough. Pretty rough. Um... But that was, for me, that was normal life, you know. So by the time I was 13 years old, I'd, I'd been held at knife point three times. You know, first time I was about nine or ten years old. Guy with a big stiletto at my throat. And then another couple of times, just big butcher's knives been been held at me. Before I was 13. I didn't realise the traumatic effect that had upon me. Because that was just normal where I grew up. You know, um, and so he's saying, "I want to come and father you in that place where you've been traumatized, where you've been broken." But all the time I was saying, "Back off! This is all your fault." You know. But it, so anyway, I, at that point in LL, I, I, I kind of prayed, mumbled something like, "You know," and just went on with doing the good Christian thing, you know, going to the meetings, leading prayer meetings, you know, being an elder and all that kind of stuff, preaching. But then I, I think it was about 2003, 2004, I heard a man called James Jordan from New Zealand talking about God as a father. I was a pastor by this time. I was pastoring a, a Pentecostal church in, in Glasgow. And I just remember, I remember listening to him and thinking, this is good teaching. I can use some of this on a Sunday <laughs> when I'm struggling for my own material. <laughs> all pastors do it. Don't, don't believe them when they say they don't. <laughs> We've all done it. Haven't we, Phil? <laughs> and so, but some, again, there's a, just a little bit of something that, that's lodged in my heart that's kind of connected somewhere at a depth that I wasn't even aware of at the time. And so the following year, no, that same year, 2004, I went to Toronto with a friend of mine. And, you know, people speaking about Father and Daddy God and, and I thought they needed a good slap. You know, it's like, oh, grow up, Daddy. Do you mean, like, smack you? <laughs> you start that carry on with me. But it... It was pushing buttons in me, you know, because I grew up without a dad. I, I didn't call. I, I didn't have any relationship with a daddy or, or father or anything. I didn't really have much relationship with any male figures in my life, you know. Um, basically, grew up, brought up with my mum and my gran. Um, and people would quote Psalm 139 to me. You know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. And I thought, yeah, he did a crap job though, didn't he? <laughs> you know, because he, he royally screwed up my life. Why didn't he heal my dad? You know, if, if he was that caring and that wonderful, why, why, did, why did he not heal my dad? And why did he let my dad die? And all of those kind of questions, you know. Uh, and I just, I left Toronto after that week disturbed. I can't say I was raging angry or, or I was happy. I, I was just unsettled 
in my heart and my spirit. But while I was there, I, I saw a leaflet where they had um, leader schools of ministry. They did a school of ministry there, kind of like this one, um, five month long. But they also did one month long schools that were just for leaders and pastors and you know ministry leaders. And so my wife and I went back in 2005 to Toronto and discovered that James Jordan and his wife Denise were coming from New Zealand to do a week on the Father's Love. So we thought, oh, that should be good. He's a good teacher. Um, and he ripped my life apart. <laughs> because he's speaking about the Father and, and coming to love us and, and love us in the places where we've not been loved, where we've not experienced love or, or fathering or parenting. All of this anger started rising up in me. But along with the anger was just a lot of pain. I was so... At times it, it was almost like a physical pain. Because I realised what I missed out on when I was a little boy. What I thought was normal life of, of violence and gangs and sex and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Begin to realise that that's not what he... That's, that wasn't really life. For a lot of people that wasn't normal. You know? And I remember in one of the meetings in Toronto, you go, up, you go into the main auditorium and, and then you can go up these stairs to a, a kind of mezzanine platform area where there's some seminar rooms. And we were up there. And all the way along at the end of this mezzanine area, there, was, uh, there were some empty offices. And opposite the empty offices was a little alcove. So I, I, found, I found that and I went and hid there. Um, just cursing everybody that was in that bloody room. <laughs> because it was just too painful to begin to face and realise that I don't have it all together I'm actually broken you know um, I've come to realise that, that we're all broken every single human being is broken when Adam sinned it doesn't just cause some great cosmic upheaval but it actually fractured humanity and all of humanity inherited that fracturing from Adam. So running through our very nature is brokenness. And Paul's quite clear that that will never be fully healed until Jesus returns. <coughs> he says, doesn't he, he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. I think, yeah, God's going to heal me completely. But Paul doesn't finish there. He says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, we'll never be fully healed until Jesus comes back. And that's been actually quite liberating for me. Because somehow in Christianity we get this message that if you're living broken, if you're living with brokenness, then somehow you're not complete, you're not a, a, a real Christian, because you shouldn't be living like that, you should be in victory and triumph and all of that kind of stuff. And so you get this subtle message that if you're broken, then you're useless to God. The fact is we're all broken. And that brokenness will never be fully healed or erased until Jesus comes back. The scripture says that we shall see him as he is, for then we shall be like him. That's when every tear is wiped away from our eyes and all that kind of stuff that Revelation speaks of. And so that was that was difficult for me to, to accept that I'm broken because I grew up in an environment where weakness made you a victim. You know? And so I learned to cover over all of that brokenness, all of that trauma in my life by being hard. You know? I remember when we used to be out and... and there might be a bit of aggro. It was like my friends would always be saying to me, you know, get them the eye. You know, you know what I'm saying, guys, get them a stare. Because I was really good at that. You know, get somebody the eye and like, I kind of, come on then. Let's go. Yeah. Um, that became a bit of my identity. You know, I was a tough guy. I remember I worked in Torquay. I lived with a girl there for a, for a while. And some guys came down from Scotland um, 
and we were all sitting out drinking in, in, in one of the parks. And one of them get talking to my girlfriend, and she says, he said, I know him. I know him from Scotland. She says, all oh, right, right. He says, she says, oh, that's my boyfriend. I said, that's your boyfriend? He said, he's mental. He's crazy. And that kind of was like, that was my identity, you know. So it was hard for me to, to begin to understand that that's not really who I was. That was just a veneer, a facade that I put on to hide my weakness, hide my brokenness. You know, kind of like Adam put on his fig leaves in the garden. And he goes and hides in the bushes and the trees. And it's kind of like he's got the green fig leaves on, hiding in the green trees. Kind of like, look, nothing wrong here. I fit right in. And I, and I kind of lived that, that whole tough stuff, that violence and everything else. That was my fig leaves that enabled me to hide my brokenness and say, look, there's nothing to see here. That was my hiding place. You know, when I was a little boy, I hid in books. When I grew up, I hid hid in violence and toughness and sex and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And here I am sitting in this place in Toronto, realising I'm broken. And all of the... All the pain, it's almost, it's like everything I had locked up, the pain, the disappointment, the rejection, the feelings of abandonment and everything else that had come through my dad's death. And, you know, I, I was sent away from home twice uh, to kind of residential schools um, for a few weeks at a time to give the, my family respite. But that, that, was, that wasn't a good environment. That's another place where I learned I had to toughen up, you know. I almost drowned twice. So lots of stuff. And all the pain of that and everything else. The sense of loss and grief from my dad that I'd never really dealt with. I remember when my dad died, lying in my cousin's bed and saying, I will never let them see me cry. So I would never let anyone see me cry. That was another part of that being tough, being hard, you know. Um, and again, here I am in Toronto, realizing all of this stuff, all of this brokenness, all of that. Really, a lot of what my life was was a lie, because I wasn't that person that I'd portrayed myself as. That I, I, I deceived myself into believing that I was that tough guy, and I wasn't. I'm not, <laughs> you know. Um, and I'm sitting in this alcove in Toronto just broken and not knowing how to deal with that not knowing how to cope with that but during that time in Toronto I began a whole process of forgiveness and I, I, we'll talk about forgiveness later in the week but, but I, I began to understand there is no forgiveness without compassion there's no such thing as just saying, I forgive and that's it, done. That's Christianity's condas with some of the teaching on forgiveness. It's why we're not free and why some stuff still comes back to haunt us. Because without compassion, I think it's impossible to forgive. And so God began to show me my mum's life, my dad's life. What, what was it like for them? That, 21 and 20 years old or 22 and 21 years old to be told that my dad was was ill and might be disabled they didn't know about multiple sclerosis back then they didn't know how long he would live for or or any of those things what was that like for them those of you that are old enough can you remember what was it like for you when you were 20, 21, 22 I know what I was like and to cope with something like that. And so he began to show me all this. He began to show me little bits and pieces that I knew about my mum and dad's life as they grew up and seeing what it was like for them. And suddenly I just began to understand how difficult it had been for them. And understanding that, that they didn't hate me, they didn't reject me, they just were so um, weighed down by the horrors of, of what was happening to them. And I just started letting go of some of the pain, some of the anger. Um, 
I remember just lying in those chairs in Toronto for hours at a time just pouring all this stuff out to God just yeah just pouring all this stuff out all this pain all this anger um, and that, that continued on after Toronto as well it wasn't something that happened overnight um, I came back to Glasgow at the end of July 1989, uh, sorry 2005 I rem- and I was a, a few weeks later I was sitting in, in my, my, my spare room just preparing my sermon for the next morning I was pastoring at this time uh, and it was almost like there was a tangible sense of, of God there in the room really you know and I just stopped preparing my sermon and and just sat there I don't know how long I sat there for but I heard God speak to me I don't think it was audible but it, but it was really real it was so real it, it could have been audible and he just said one word to me and it has transformed my life and he just said to me son but with such tenderness I've never heard anybody speak so tenderly to me um, and it touched me somewhere in my heart that I didn't even know existed <laughs> You know, I didn't even know that place was there, and I just I just started crying and crying. But it, it was different, you know. I've cried a lot as I say going through this inner healing stuff, and but these tears were different. It was almost like all the stuff was was being washed away. You know, all the crap, all the rubbish was just being washed away. Um, and all of those questions, you know, why didn't you heal my dad? Why did you let my dad die? Why did I grow up without being fathered? And all, you know, all of that stuff. Why did I grow up being traumatised by all the violence and different things that happened to me? You know, he's never answered those questions. But that day I stopped asking them. They became irrelevant. Those questions became irrelevant because something happened in my heart. You know, that all of that stuff he'd been doing over the years, trying to speak to me about being a father to me, about being my father in heaven, you know, letting go of my dad, all that stuff that happened that time over that month in Toronto and the weeks after that, it's like he was just preparing my heart for that one time when he could get in and speak those words to me. And suddenly those questions were irrelevant I don't have an answer for any of them. I don't know why my dad died. I don't know why my dad got multiple sclerosis or any... I don't know any of that. I don't know why we grew up poor. You know, I remember going to school when I was about 10, 11 years old, just that time when you're starting to think about impressing girls. And just so full of shame. Because my school uniform was my mum's old ski pants and a pair of Wellingtons. That's how poor... You know, we, we had no money. And so I had to wear what I had to wear. And just... The humiliation, the embarrassment, the shame. Um, so I had all those questions, but but suddenly it was like they were unimportant. That's why clothes sometimes are quite important to me. But yeah, they just suddenly weren't important anymore. Those questions, they didn't matter because. When he, when he said that word, when he said son, it's like all of the love that I, I, I'd never known began to touch my heart. Because there was such tenderness in it, there was such compassion and love in it, and just that, that sense of his voice speaking right into my heart. Um, yeah. And I'd, I'd some experiences where, where I experienced them fathering me, I guess, is the only way to put it. You know, I, I, as I say, I almost drowned twice when I was a little boy. Um, I remember being in a, a rope swing out over the river. Uh, I was about eight or nine years old. And you know what it's like? You jump in the rope swing and everybody else piles on. <laughs> All your mates pile on to see how many you can get on the rope. And it snapped and I went into the water. Uh, 
And I remember, I can still see the picture of it in my mind, actually walking out of the river. I don't know how I did that. You know, I should have drowned and I should have died there, but I didn't. Um, I saw, but it gave me a real fear of water. So, I, you know, I wouldn't go out in my depth in, in swimming pools or in, you know, if I'm in the swimming pool, I'd stay near the edge so I could grab the edge. If I, <laughs> in the sea, I wouldn't go out in my depth. And in this vision, they, they took me swimming. God took me swimming. Um, I thought, that's great, you know, I didn't realise, but I didn't know anything had happened until a, a few years ago, maybe about four or five years ago now, went to Egypt with my wife on holiday and she was determined to get me snorkelling. She's been snorkelling for years and because of my fear of water, I, I just wouldn't do it. But this time she was determined, so she got me She got me with the, the mask and the snorkel and all that and the fins and and I went out over the, this, cor- this coral, which it was about that deep. So I'm, I'm over this coral looking at the fish and suddenly it drops down about 10 metres and I start, I'm freaking out. But then I saw all the fish and uh, I just started enjoying it. I suddenly realised that I was out of my depth in the water and, and I wasn't afraid, you know. So that was interesting. And then another time I, I was in place, just in worship, a little school of ministry like this, I would, I was teaching at and during the worship session I was just lying on the floor and I had this vision uh, and the perspective was of a little boy maybe a toddler coming through this this big heavy wooden door into a room that was quite posh so the walls were all lined with bookshelves and volumes of books floor to ceiling and big leather sofas with guys in suits sitting around having meetings and there was this man sitting at a big desk, big mahogany desk. And I just stood frozen in this room like, uh, I shouldn't be here, you know. And this guy behind the desk waves me forward and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble here. I'm going to get in trouble. And so I kind of very cautiously walked towards the desk. And this guy picked me up and put me on his knee and put his arms around me in the middle of this big meeting and, and stuff. And I, I turned around and, and my picture was on his desk. And I realised where I was. I was. I was on my father's knee. God's, God had picked me up and put me in his lap. I thought about that scripture in Isaiah where it says, you know, you will be dandled on her knee. So there's been lots of experiences like that. Just knowing him, fathering me, loving me, touching my heart. And just the whole journey since then has been growing as a son, learning what it means to be a son. Um, because I've begun to understand that that's what we were created for. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, meaning us. <laughs> you know, he, in fact, Hebrews 2 says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And so I realised that that's what we're created for in the image of Christ to be sons, to be brothers to Jesus which means sons to God our Father. It was always his plan, always his purpose for us. That's what, that's what the garden was, Adam the son walking with God the Father in the garden. Luke chapter 3 verse 38 actually says that Adam is the son of God. And so as they walked in the garden they walked as father and son and that's the, that was the pattern, that's the blueprint for all of mankind, that we would all know what it is to walk with him as sons and daughters. And I realise that that's what he's been doing, that's what he's been teaching me, still teaching me, I'm still learning. What does it look like to walk as a son, to walk as a daughter, with God being a father to us? And I really had to learn to begin to trust him. I never trusted anyone in my life because... You couldn't trust anyone. They would always let you down. I could only trust me. And I was a bit of a screw-up at times, so <laughs> even that wasn't reliable. And so, you know, we, we talk about having faith and it's this big, powerful thing like standing on the Word and declaring the Word and all of that kind of like to kind of pump ourselves up, you know. And I realised that that's not faith at all. That's just pumping ourselves up. Faith is trust. 
in a person. And so instead of standing in the Word and trusting the Word and all that, I'm, I'm learning to trust the person that wrote the Word, who just happens to be my father. And so my faith isn't in a book or a program or a church or a denomination, but it's, I'm, being, I'm learning to put my trust in a person. And that person just happens to be Almighty God, who's my Father. And that's, you know, I remember reading in, in Matthew chapter 6. You know, because I grew up quite poor, I, I grew up with a lot of anxiety and, and, and worry about, you know, what's going to come tomorrow and all of that kind of stuff. And Jesus said, don't worry about all of these things. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that, that's become a real important scripture for me, that as I've learned to trust him just a little bit at a time, he's proven himself trustworthy. And more and more I can, I can trust him. So this year my wife was made redundant. She's the main breadwinner. I mean, I do this. I travel around the world, which sounds glamorous. But anybody in ministry will tell you there's not a lot of money in it. <laughs> you know, you're never going to be rich unless you're based in America and your name's Benny Hinn or something like that, you know. Um, no, that's not slagging off of Benny Hinn. I like Benny. I think he's a great guy. Um, but there's no money in ministry. And so it's suddenly the main income for our family is, is disappearing. But we weren't freaking out. You know, years ago I would have been freaking out and really panicking and not sleeping at night because how are we going to live, how are we going to pay the bills and, and you know, my wife hasn't worked for a few months so far and the bills have been paid. So he's proven himself faithful again and, and something that years ago would have been huge for me huge area of, of panic and anxiety and it's just like ah my dad looks after me <laughs> that's what dads do <laughs> that's what they're, what they're supposed to do and so I'm learning that this trust this thing we call faith is actually just relationship with a person whom you trust and you know all of those years of, of trauma in my life and brokenness left me struggling with anxiety and depression uh, I currently still take meds you know, I take floxetine um, 20 mils a day because what I discovered is you know when you, you take the lid off stuff it all comes out and you can't put the lid back on and it's not all going to go away just like that overnight but the more I'm, I'm allowing him to love me the more I'm allowing him to uncover the stuff that's messed me up, the more I'm learning that, that I really can trust him with it. You know, because it, the message we often get in, in Christendom is that you need to be strong, you need to be an overcomer, you need to be victorious, and anything that doesn't fit with that is it's almost like, well, if you're sick, if you're... Um, broken then somehow you've got a lack of faith or you must be sinning or there's something wrong with you and until you get yourself fixed God can't use you I've discovered that's rubbish that's absolute nonsense I'm broken I take meds for anxiety and yet God's got me travelling all over the world sharing this message of his love this revelation of love I mean, look at the guys in the Bible. They were all broken. Every single one of them. It didn't stop God from, from ministering through them. I don't like saying God used them because that sounds a bit used up and thrown away. And it's not how he do, that's not how he does it with us. It's not the way he walks with us. It's not how he treats us. And so many of us have been affected by different traumas in our lives. Abandonment, violence, abuse, neglect or just rejection, abandonment, some of it real, some of it just how we reacted as, as children to life's circumstances. And we've all put on our fig leaves in different ways to cover up our trauma, cover up our brokenness. 
And we hide it even in church because church world says, if you're broken, there's something wrong with you and you don't fit in here. And yet we're all in the same boat. (laughs) We're all in the same place, all pretending to each other that we're okay. You know, you turn up at tea or coffee and after the service on a Sunday, it's like, how are you doing? Great. Praise the Lord. God is good all the time. (laughs) You know, and we're all doing crap. (laughs) I remember when I came back from Bible school in the 90s, uh, I was just getting sick of all this stuff, you know, back then. And someone asked me how I was and I was like, do you really want to know? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I told them. And they just looked at me, didn't see anything, got up and walked away. I thought, well, honesty sucks. <laughs> I better put the fig leaves back on. And that's the message that's given, isn't it? Like, well... And if, you, if you're honest about your struggles, then you need to get fixed. I want to fix you. You need to go into counselling. You need to go into ministry. You need to go into inner healing. You need to go to this conference and that course. And, and I've discovered something. God isn't trying to fix me. I don't know about you, but that was total revolutionary revelation for me. God is not trying to fix me. That blew my mind. Still blows my mind that he's not interested in fixing me. What he is interested in is connecting with me. Bringing me into relationship because in the place of relationship that's where transformation takes place. Even on a human level. You know, loving my wife, being married, been married for 30 years now. That has caused a great change to take place in me living in that relationship and God wants to draw us into that place of relationship as sons and daughters to a father who fathers us in our hearts and our spirits even in our physical lives and in that place of relationship and love we will change in fact Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3 doesn't he? he says as we contemplate his glory he's saying as we just live in that place with his beauty and his glory and his presence, it says we are being transformed into his image. And this comes from the Lord. So I realised that actually all he wants is to draw me into relationship with him, where I could experience what Adam lost in the garden, what he had while he, before the fall, when he walked with his father. I don't know what they talked about, what that looked like, that kind of intimacy. But it's actually what Jesus has died for, for us to come into that place of intimacy you know he said in in John 14 I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you also may be and he said lots you know Jesus knew he'd come out in John 13 he'd come into the world from God and was returning to God and lots of scriptures like that and in John 1 I saw a little verse, verse 18 where it says no one has ever seen God But God, the one and only, who came from the bosom of the Father, has made him known. And he's saying Jesus came from this place of intimacy with God. He came out of that place of intimacy. That that whole thing coming from the bosom, it can mean from his side, from his shoulder, his lap, his chest. And it it just speaks of this place of intimacy and and closeness. A place where, where we can be comforted and and nourished and encouraged and Jesus is saying I'm returning to that place and I'm, re- I'm preparing a place for you so that where I am you also may be that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 when he says we are seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father he's saying we're in that place of intimacy we may not realise it yet but that's actually where we truly are and what he wants to do is not fix you so that you can get back into some battle You know the battle was won 2,000 years ago? You know that? I don't know what battle it is we're trying to fight, but the battle was actually won 2,000 years ago. The battle over sin and death. Jesus conquered them both. And he's prepared a place for us at the heart, at the very bosom of the Father, where we can experience that intimacy with him. 
And he's not trying to fix us in that place. He just wants to love us. He just wants each one of us to know that you are loved. You're cared for. You're important. You matter. You have significance. You know, he wants us to experience what Jesus experienced, living in that place of intimacy. So he just wants to connect with us in relationship. And that was the purpose of Jesus coming. That was the purpose of Jesus dying, to, to enable us to come back into that place, to reconcile us in relationship. He just wants us to know him, being a father to us. And everything else flows out of that. Provision, power, whatever you want to call it. You know, Jesus just lived as a son, didn't he? He called himself the son of man. The Jews called him the son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, they cried out. The demons called him the son of the most high God. He only was ever referred to as a son. In fact, when the devil came to him in the desert... In Matthew 3 and, and other verses, he says to him, If you are the Son, then prove it. Turn the stone into bread or, or jump from this building. See, he just lived as a son. He, he wasn't the miracle worker, he wasn't the apostle or the super apostle or bishop. Or, he was none of those things. He was a son. That's how he lived his life. You know, when, when he was in, in Jerusalem, when he was a little boy, remember the, the journey out of Jerusalem and they discover Jesus is missing and they travel back to Jerusalem to search for him. Three days he's missing and they find him in the temple. And he said to him, why are you worried? He's, he's confused. He's like, why are we upset? <laughs> he's 12 years old. <laughs> it's like, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? And it says something interesting. It says, but they did not understand what he was saying. And so he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And he grew in stature and wisdom with both God and men. Living as a son to Joseph and Mary was how Jesus became the man we see in the Gospels, as well as living as a son to his Father in heaven. It's how he lived his life. And if we have been conformed to the image of his son, then living as a son is the pattern for our lives too. It's what Adam experienced in the garden, what Jesus experienced as he walked on the earth. And he just wants to draw us into, each of us into that place to connect with us in relationship where we can experience what it is to be loved, the substance of his love being poured into our hearts. Hebrews 5, uh, sorry, Romans 5 talks about that, doesn't it? Hope does not disappoint us for he has the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts and he wants us to live in the conscious experience of that love being poured into our hearts that's the place I'm learning to live in where I've been learning to live in for the last decade the love of God being poured into our hearts and the substance of that love causing transformation within you know I guess getting off of the hamster wheel of religion you know, Godfrey, I love Godfrey Bertold. I don't know if you guys are familiar with his stuff. But he's got a song about that, about getting off the hamster wheel. <laughs> getting off of the wheel. And that's what religion becomes. That's what church can become, what Christianity can become. When we disconnect from intimate relationship with the Father and start to live a relationship with the Bible or with the Word or with sermons or, or personalities, it ends up being a religious hamster wheel. And he wants us to get us off of that into that place of intimacy. And it looks like from the outside, if you look into someone living in that place, it looks like they don't do very much. You know? But Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. I only speak the words that I've been taught to speak. You know, when he healed the man at the pool, you know, the man said, whenever the waters are stirred, when I try to get into the water, someone always gets there before me. And Jesus heals him and then goes away. I said, but what about all the other disabled people there? Why didn't he heal them? Because he only did what he saw his father doing. 
He didn't get a microphone and have a, have a, a meeting there and saying, tell everyone how Jesus healed you. You know, it's like... <laughs> he didn't do that. He said, don't tell anyone. Just go to the priest and, and offer the sacrifice that's necessary for thanks to God. You know, I wonder how often Jesus walked past the gate beautiful, which was the main entrance into the temple at that time. And we don't read about him doing any miracles there. But after he'd, he'd ascended, Peter and John were going to the, through the gate beautiful. And there was a man there who, says, who had been there for a long time. Jesus must have walked past this guy numerous occasions, this disabled man. But on this occasion, Peter and John said, stop. Peter stopped and said, and fixed his attention on him, it says, and said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Why didn't Jesus do that whenever he passed by that man? Because he lived out of relationship. He wasn't living for ministry, he was living out of relationship <coughs> with his father. And I wonder, I don't know, you know, I can only suppose, I can only imagine, you know, did he walk past and, and say, Father, can I pray for this guy? And Father would just say, Mm-mm, leave him. What? Because on other occasions, Jesus healed everyone who came to him. But he didn't do it on every occasion. And so often we get caught in this religious cycle where it's like, I have to witness, I have to do this, I have to... And I guess living in this place of relationship, we're learning just to say, okay, Father, teach me how to see what you're doing and join you in that. It's like little boys and girls getting taken to work by their dads. You know, it's like you have those, you know, take your kids to work day. <laughs> it's kind of like that every day with, with, with Father. And he just picks us up, puts us in his shoulders and starts doing stuff. You know, my, my friend tells a story about when he used to mow the lawn, his little boy would, would go behind him with his little toy mower and then he'd run into the house and drag his mum out to show her what he'd done <laughs> with his little toy mower. It's like, come and see what I did, come and see what we did, you know. And it's like, it's kind of like that, walking with him and, and walking in a relationship with father. Everyone says, look what John did. And it's like, <laughs> I didn't do anything. I'm just a little boy in a suit of armour, you know. My friend had a vision about that. He'd, he's standing in, in this forest on this overgrown old path. And it was like, kind of like Sherwood, you know, Robin Hood territory. All these big trees. And, and as he's looking down this old overgrown path, he sees that something coming towards him and there's this light as it comes near he realises that within this light there's there's a knight on a horse a big white horse with this guy in armour on it just coming along and as, that, as this horse is going along people are coming out and falling down before him and crying and dancing and occasionally there's other people running away from this light into the darkness of the forest and the horse just comes and stops at my friend and he's kind of like gets up his courage and gets up and he pulls the visor up and there's nothing there there's no face so he, he gets his courage up and he pulls the helmet off no head so he looks down inside the armour and down inside the armour is just a little boy giggling and killing himself laughing it's like uh, they all think I'm this great big knight and I'm just a little boy having fun and it's, it's kind of like walking with him is a bit like that Everyone thinks I do all these great, this great stuff. It's just I'm just a little boy having fun with my dad. Uh, that's the life I'm learning to live. You know, all of the pressures of, of when I was younger of trying to have it all together and be competent and knowledgeable and tough and unbreakable. It was just a false life. It was an orphan-style life. I'm going to talk a bit about orphan-heartedness later in the week. But it was just a false life, just an orphan-style life. I've tried to be something that I'm not really, that I never was. But I had to be in order to survive in this world. But I'm learning that as I let go of that and just learn to walk with him as a son, 
that actually I don't need all of that stuff to survive in this life because he's got my back he's got me covered his love just covers me I'm not immune to bad things happening but his love being poured into my heart changes my heart responses to rubbish happening you know I was I did a, a week long thing like this we call them Father Heart A schools where we introduced this whole revelation to people over a, a whole week uh, down in, I did that in York and I came home on the Saturday evening went to bed got up in the morning we'd been burgled you know uh, money that I'd take, brought from school £2,000 was missing my MacBook and all sorts of stuff my wife's laptop her iPhone bits and pieces of jewellery and a few years ago I would have been I would have wanted to find out who that was and I'd have gone looking for him even as a Christian I would have gone looking for the guy you know I didn't even get annoyed I'm, I'm kind of like you know this is a few weeks later now and I'm sitting here going when's it going to kick in when's, when's it, the desire for revenge going to kick in you know it's like because I, I remember when I was younger somebody I knew had, had robbed something from my mum I, I went looking for a gun to try and find the guy you know so I know what I used to be like and somebody's just broke into my house and stole all that money and all that stuff and I'm not even angry I'm just like wow this love stuff works <laughs> it's the most powerful force I've ever encountered it's his love I mean I've been through inner healing and all sorts of ministry and different things I've had deliverance and goodness knows what over the years nothing has affected me the way his love is affecting me on an ongoing basis nothing now don't get me wrong ministry helps inner healing helped me I'm not discounting all of that and saying it's rubbish but nothing has affected my heart and changed my life like his love has nothing whatsoever and it's just phenomenal you know, so I'm, I'm just learning to live in that place of being loved and seeing what develops out of that. I don't make plans. You know, I came back from, I went to New Zealand for a month with Father Heart Ministries, who I'm a part of now. And uh, I came back and people were saying, oh, how was it? I said, oh, it was great. What happened? I'm saying, I'm not quite sure what happened actually, but I know stuff happened, but I, I can't put it into words. Something just happened in that place, in that atmosphere. And they're saying, yeah, but you know where you're going, you've got a plan for the future. And I was like, no. <laughs> and they all thought I was crazy, you know. And then I, I, you know, it was just, uh, I quit pastoring and all sorts of stuff. I don't have to have plans. I don't have to have a strategy. You know, I don't, I don't go around saying to people, I'll come and preach at your church or I'll come and do a ministry at your place and I don't do any of that you know I don't need to it's not my responsibility because I'm just a little boy who needs to be loved and I let my dad take care of all of that stuff you know 55 years old but really I'm still just 10 with 45 years experience <laughs> <laughs> And I sit and do this kind of stuff and I love... The guy who really pioneered this whole thing was a man called Jack Winter back in the 1970s. And he used to say, you know, we're just four-year-olds teaching three-year-olds. <laughs> we're not some away up there spiritually leagues ahead of everyone. We're not. We're just little kids teaching other little kids. And it's great. It's so... All the stress, all the pressure, all the responsibility just comes right off your shoulders. I start to live a life where there is less stress, there's more peace, there's more rest. And it's just great. So I'm, you know, I, I do stuff like this around the world and it, this doesn't work. This doesn't work at all. I miss, being, I miss being, being with my wife, but this is not a hardship. It really isn't. It's just great doing this and being a part of this and seeing what, what Father does 
in our lives and, and thinking, I get, to, I get to live this life. How cool is that? <laughs> that I get to live this life. After all the years of trying to make it happen, of trying to make ministry for myself, you know, pastoring two churches and all the different stuff, and it's like, I don't have to do that anymore because it's not mine to make. <laughs> I just look and see what he's doing and, and I do it with him. Sitting on his shoulders with my little toy lawnmower. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.